Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. special episode guys of Conspiranormal this one we had a nice little surprise I sent uh, Seraphiel the other day a post by Jay Dyer that he's going to be here in Nashville and we've never had Jay on the show before even though we've corresponded a couple of times uh, well, I was too much of a douchebag I was, I was a Isolab douchebag man I don't know you guys I'm just, I'm just fucking around sorry my bad so uh yeah, it was one of those things, like I said before, where you you, you mean to mean to contact somebody and then you forget about then you forget, it. Forget, right? You think, oh, I can I can uh, contact them later, and uh, then you just total or you forget again, and all this kind of stuff. So, Serfiel is here. Yes, sir. He helped set this up. Cause yeah, I ran up on him, as they say. Yeah, I had to go to work, and I said that uh, I sent to him a message that you were here. And he went over to Centennial Park where you were down there, Jay. Yeah, I kind of just snuck in and and illegally sold my books. Yeah, I thought you'd have like a little table. <laughs> oh, no. See, I didn't even know that was going on. I was like, I thought you had a table or something. So I'm looking at all these, and then there's just dude sitting there. I recognize your shirt. I saw from a picture on it on Facebook. I was like, oh, that's my him. boomer shirt. Yeah. yeah. Is that there? Yeah. Tiki baby shirt. Yeah, shirt. Tiki shirt. Yeah. Well, baby boomers like tiki. That's okay. that's 50s tiki culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's coming back around. Well, thanks for inviting me out, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, man. We showed you around a little bit around Nashville. You did, man. You guys have been blowing my mind with this Masonic symbolism in Nashville, which I did not know about. I knew a little bit about like the Centennial Mall area, mm-hmm. all that weird stuff there, and the Parthenon, obviously. But I mean, the degree to which you guys have been giving me this master's degree level yeah, education. Our synchro mystic tour is what exactly. we call it, you know, so. Yeah, man. Well, uh, what, what really blew my mind was what you just showed me. This Presbyterian so-called church uh, that is literally designed with Egyptian architecture. It has a sun disc, the winged sun yeah, disc, right over the church. It's modeled after a temple of the sun. That's, That's William right. Strickland. It's the same uh, architect who did the um, our state capitol building as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and if you go inside of it, there's, like, reliefs all around of, like, palm trees and stuff. And it's it's basically like a, you know, a a sun temple to the sun god or or maybe Akhenaten. I'm not exactly sure how deep he was into it, but it's uh, it's pretty odd. Well, I should have taken video imagery of it, but I guess I can can clip in some of the the pictures. But, um, yeah, it kind of blew me away. And and it's, it's on the side of the building that it literally was. You're not just conspiracy theorizing it really yeah no it, it's really meant it's really meant to be a, uh, a replica of a sun temple which has nothing to do with christianity really according to yeah of course yeah. according to some it, it it does you know but uh yeah it's very very interesting but this is the athens of the south you know so this was uh there's a lot of pagan symbolism uh, all over 
because this was supposed to be this center of learning for the uh, high society types before it then became, uh, before the hillbillies took over. Why Athens of the South? Why Athens of the South? Like what? So basically the idea was to create a kind of culture center, right? Yeah, yeah. This was a center of publishing. It was a, a center of religious study and universities, universities in particular, Vanderbilt. And the, obviously the Freemasons would have been all oh, up yeah. in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You want to start on just uh, introducing yourself, Jay, and, and uh, sure. yep. how you how you got into uh, this? I guess you're most well-known for your analysis of films, but uh, what really was your, your path in, into studying all this kind of stuff? Uh, it goes back to college, to undergrad. Um, that's the period where I really started delving into philosophy, theology, symbolism in film. I always wanted to do movies, but... I realized, I don't know, about age 18 that I wasn't going to be in movies. I don't want to move to Hollywood and do that stuff. So um, I just took film classes, and I took history classes, and I took philosophy classes. So I was looking for a way to integrate all of them, and grad school kind of gelled that all together because uh, I did my thesis on Bond and Ian Fleming and the symbolism in James Bond because he actually utilized a lot of sometimes Masonic and mm-hmm. alchemical symbols in the Bond novels. The term bond itself, bonding, right, is a chemical idea. Um, Never thought about that. Yeah, it, it, actually, it's really surprising how how much of that is in the Bond novels. But that tied it into the realm of espionage. So I was studying psychological warfare and espionage as well, mm-hmm. um, reading a lot of stuff on the side. And then I thought, well, why not try to integrate everything into something that in pop culture brings all these things together? So that would be film. So I just started blogging about movies. I didn't really think anything would come of it. I thought it would just be kind of a hobby. Right. And then it just kind of turned into a thing where somebody said, hey, do you have a book? Um, publisher reached out. I didn't, but I said I did. <laughs> so I just took all the essays and I smashed them together in a book. Hey. Um, sent that to him, and then that led to uh, doing one season of a TV show based on the book, roughly, with Jay Widener the, of Kubrick fame. Uh, Kubrick's, yeah. Kubrick's Odyssey, yeah, Room 237. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So then, um, did the second book that just came out in January, and now we're shopping a new TV show to like the big network. So hopefully that'll get bought. Uh, it'll be broader than the original TV show, which was just on film symbolism. This will be all of pop culture. Okay. Um, so that was the long story short. Is that college plus blogging eventually just kind of snowballed into this this realm. Cool. And so you wrote your, your first book, Esoteric Hollywood. When did that come out? I think it was 216, 2016, December. Um, and that was mainly 80 pages of Kubrick. And then it goes into H.G. Wells and Spielberg, which is crazy because you just showed me this new, in front of the Marriott here in Nashville, they have this yep. pylon, basically, yeah. that's like oh. binary... And it's got H.G. Wells quotes. That, that that really blew my mind. So I'm glad we I'm glad we saw that. And yeah. it's a crazy thing that people walk by here every day and don't realize they don't know what it is, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, that was 2016. That so it goes to Kubrick, H.G. Wells, uh, Spielberg, and then it goes to uh, Bond and David Lynch, and then I kind of closed the book with the CIA in Hollywood. Um, so that was book number one. And then at the same time, I was also kind of on the side, just playing with doing more video stuff. So I did a lot more, kind of what I call mini documentaries, on YouTube, and that really grew the YouTube channel. So 
uh, that's kind of where my main focus is now. Although uh, hopefully there will be a Star Hollywood three, but yeah, I mean one and one and two are great though, and I mean not not only is it uh, analysis of these movies, but you use these movies as a lens to explore all the topics that are in it too, and give a bunch of information about that. So yeah, because it, really it, cool. it brings in all these different realms. So it's like geopolitics and espionage and secret societies and you know masonry and alchemy plus actual history versus Hollywood. Yeah. So it's a weird mix. And I didn't really know if it would work, but... Like it pe- works. It, people, the, the analyses resonate with people, and you mentioned, like, Hoffman and people like that, and there yeah. was a... He kind of inspired me a long time ago because he did an analysis of conspiracy theory of the Mel Gibson movie in the style of the way I do it. Okay. So I kind of got it from that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can segue into that as far as... Um, Films come from this tradition you talk about of theater, and theater has all these roots in ritual and ceremony. And film can be seen as a as ritual, as almost a kind of spellcasting uh, towards towards the viewer, towards the masses. And this relates to Hoffman and Downard's ideas about revelation of the method, which is that uh, society and individuals are alchemically transformed by these mass rituals, but one element of that is that symbolism allows uh, that that consent is a big part of it, even if it's only subconscious. And symbolism is seen to be able to do that in the esoteric realm, but in the film realm, I guess it can. These movies can almost be seen as. Uh, the population giving consent to things that are actually taking place in the world. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So if you, my first analysis is Eyes Wide Show. That was kind of the more popular one that I did, and I took that very thesis to it. I took the thesis that Kubrick is kind of taking the individual on a ritual journey, and I wouldn't have even known about that idea had I not been aware of the idea of Revelation of the Method. So yeah. I think that Kubrick was attempting to initiate the viewer, whether they knew it or not. Um, yeah. They don't have to give a consent, but they're going along the journey with Bill Harford. So I, I think you're you're spot on. And really the idea of Revelation of Method pretty much permeates both both volumes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, d- I didn't realize uh, how much of an influence those ideas were on you and you know of course I'm a total downard freak. Uh, so so that immediately, you know, sparked my interest. So I was like, yeah, this is Yeah, I mean, it's not Revelation of Method is definitely a big part of it because that plays into gaslighting, psychological warfare, yeah. that stuff. Um, there's there's a little bit of synchromysticism in the Close Encounters chapter because oh. I noticed some really weird stuff. Like if you remember the section in the movie where they the printout shows coordinates, and those coordinates happen to be <laughs> the Denver Airport, pretty pretty much really? in the, yeah in the vicinity of the Denver Airport, which uh, that's interesting is very bizarre because huh. we all know about the Denver, but yeah um, yeah. But it's, it was also, I think there's an article in the 2000s in the Washington Post, early 2000s, that, that talked about Denver as uh, a very important relocation spot for the CIA. Okay. It's actually a lot of CIA operations. I mean, there's, okay. they're in Langley, obviously, but, but there's also a lot going on in Denver. So that has a lot to do probably with the underground base lore and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's a little bit of that kind of like continuity of government stuff from the oh, 80s. Oh, totally, dude. Oh, yeah. All yeah. that in the mountains, yeah, fe- the all the kind of female-based conspiracies. Yeah. yeah. So what? Rex eighty four, <laughs> Jade Helms. Yeah. One thing I really, I really appreciate about the elaboration too is you know people, people can 
people have explored these ideas before and it seems abstract okay these these films or mass media or these ritualized events are uh, geared towards changing the population or alchemically transforming the population but what does that really mean and you kind of you elaborate more on it that the goal is what you call fragmentation both on the individual level and I guess on a societal level can you kind of yeah. Elaborate on that. Yeah, so basically what I meant by that was if you're familiar with the CIA's MKUltra program, one of the things that they really focus and hone in on that Huxley talks about initially was that they realized the, the ability of the hallucinogens in a negative way would affect people in terms of dissociation. And so I kind of really looked for the possibility that films, and not just films, but pop music, pop art, could it have the potential to cause dissociation or to try to induce it or to try to fragment people's perception? And then what I realized was that if you study the black arts in the sense of like the connection between voodoo or, or black magic and how even the military in terms of psychological warfare has actually studied those things. Yeah. yeah. To, because if you, if you think about it, I mean, not necessarily although there could be casting a spell but uh, let's say drug drug use right I mean the shaman could use a drug and you know on his enemies or whatever so the same idea of biological warfare is essentially just using drugs on the target enemy so in the same way if drugs can have those effects the question becomes could films have those effects could music have that right now think about Abu Ghraib where we all heard stories of oh yeah Britney Spears or Metallica or whatever it was and Barney, I love you. Yeah, the, like being blasted supposedly to, to torture like people. Manuel Noriega playing Van Halen out <laughs> right. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then when I, I noticed when I watched um, Apocalypse Now, there's that scene where they're coming over the hill with the Blackhawks or whatever it is, and they're blasting Flight of the Valkyries. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, if you're like a Viet Cong country dude you've never heard this it would freak you out yeah, oh yeah. Uh, they actually did that that was a real thing they did so well, yeah that goes into the uh, the phoenix program exactly the, the, uh, yeah, the um, wondering soul doug valentine stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 so um i started noticing it you know like those patterns coming up and that there was such a close connection between psychological warfare and movies the pentagon and hollywood and then you come across things like uh and i put it in the first book this crazy stuff like uh, Sir Alexander Corda, who was the first British filmmaker who was knighted by the Queen, he and his circles were involved in basically being in in the groups called the, the they're called the Irregulars, and this is people like Ian Fleming and Noel Coward, who came over to the U.S. to help set up the OSS. Mm-hmm. So British intelligence came over here; they helped set that up, and some of these people were like heavily in the British film industry. So I'm starting to notice these parallels. Obviously, everybody knows about Ian Fleming, but not everybody knows he was like a high-level naval psyops dude. Long story short, I realized that they were studying film on a psychological warfare level to see all of its different potentialities, including dissociation and fragmentation. And I think that the whole project, I would say, of ruling society from the time of the Enlightenment down to now, and even perhaps into the ancient world, uh, involves the idea of fragmenting people into not being able to make large scale connections. So if you can't make mm-hmm. bigger scale connections, if your if your perspective is fragmented, then you won't see patterns and you won't figure things out. How does that play into what we experience now with our cell phones and uh, 
even though that's that, that's taking the whole film idea to to like the, the nth degree to like a whole other level. I mean, we were talking about this earlier and joking that like your cell phone basically is an extension of you now. Yeah, yeah, it's a body mod extension. Um, it's a little magic mirror. I mean, I've I've been saying it's like a magic mirror, and in fact. What I talked about in the Kubert Arthur C. Clarke section was that Clarke originally wanted it to be a screen, and it was going to have it was going to be images projected to the monkeys that would that like yeah. it like oh, like the monkeys would have been like whoa it's a TV. We were discussing American Cosmic before, and that's um, in Diana Pasuka's book. That's a concept that she lays out. It's not original to her. I forget the author that that she was borrowing, kicking that from. But essentially, your cell phone is the monolith. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that in the TV show. I think uh, Wiener brought it up that yep. um, it bears such a strange parallel to the to the to the iPhone that uh, it has to be worth. It's worth mentioning. I don't know if they intentionally thought that was right. the iPhone, but um, but yeah, it was supposed to, it was supposed to be a TV and it would transfix the monkeys, and then the idea being that the screen would would um, either lead to man's enslavement or that the elite would use this to propel themselves into the next stage of evolution. I mean, that's the whole point of you know, 2001 is transhumanism. But anyway, so yes, I think that the devices are just little magic mirrors that uh, create that put us into a little uh, autistic loop of a niche where we don't even recognize what's, yeah. what's out. And I mean, it's even worse than before the iPhone. Like, even before, people didn't know about Masonic symbolism in the city and how the cities are structured. Yeah, but now no one even looks up. Now they don't even look up because yeah. yeah, exactly right. So back to uh, back back to the film ideas. That's a good segue when you touched on the flight of the Valkyries because isn't that something that Wagner really talked about? Is that at the time opera was the ultimate art form because it was audio and visual yeah. and literary all combined. So that's really what what film inherited it seems like. it did yeah and that's what made it so much more powerful for propaganda and in fact even the vatican in the 40s or 50s uh had to do a whole encyclical on the power of film because they were worried that that this could out propagandize yeah, the vatican <laughs> and in fact uh the 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 word propaganda itself actually comes from the holy office of the inquisition they are the ones who began propaganda so um, I think that they saw the, the potential for Hollywood to um, have a degrading effect on society. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying that, that that makes the Vatican perfect or good, but one thing that's correct in that encyclical or that, that apostolic uh, address or whatever is that it does see the potential for, for film to completely transform people's perspectives and worldviews. That's why it's so useful to psychological warfare and propaganda and that's why the military was studying it from the very get-go so there's several chapters in, in both books where I go deep into that trying to explain how um, that's why you saw so many war movies yeah all those war movies were churned out for propaganda can you kind of give some background to people who may not understand that that history um, just kind of a just a primer on it for people on the on the role of both military and intelligence in the film industry it goes back to the very beginning, and, and so um, I think so. When they first saw that that early images on the camera scared people, like if you've ever seen that old picture of the train coming, yeah, and like yeah. the people that were watching that for the first time, they thought they're going to get by the, the, the great train robbery yeah, with yeah. the guy shooting the gun at the end. People exactly. actually ducked in the theaters. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, that would obviously catch the eyes of the elite, 
you know, they would notice this. They would be like, okay, how can we use this? Because that's usually how the mindset of the elite is, is how can I use this to uh, structure and control society? Um, so they saw the potential for this, and pretty early on, uh, even into the t- 20s, I would say, the first blockbusters of the 20s, which I have a chapter on Howard Hughes. That's why Howard Hughes is so important. Is the, um, he was making movies like Hell's Angels that were the... You know, the big blockbusters of their day, putting all his own money into it, plus he was tied to the deep state of his day, which is pretty obvious. Even if you watch the Martin Scorsese movie, it's yeah. pretty obvious that, yeah. Oh, yeah. that that's what's going on. And then, um, so he was churning out propaganda films at that time. Um, even the Soviets did the same thing. Um, Eisenstein. Uh, Eisenstein, um, Battle for uh, Potemkin. Um, um, uh, what's the one about the... the Alexander Nevsky. Yeah. October, which was another one of his. Yeah. Yeah. So the Soviets were doing it too. They realized they could do it. And then, of course, the Nazis had a huge role in using the camera and actually advancing camera technology for the purpose of uh, psychological warfare. So it's always been there. It's always been present. And then it just gets even crazier when you look into the fact that the heads of the major networks, when they first came to be, they were all out of the OSS. Mm -hmm. People like uh, Sarnoff, Paley, uh, all these former OSS guys, they just magically pop up in running the big networks. I mean, no. What they did was they took all of their psychological warfare knowledge and people from the advertising world, Walter Lippmann, places like that, the, st- the research that Bernays was doing, he was working yep. for mm-hmm. the government, and they just applied all that to these, quote, private companies, which aren't really private companies. They've always been in this uh, public-private partnership, you could say. I think people get the idea that uh, after the movie Argo came out, that this was that that was like the beginning of the CIA and Hollywood. Like, no, no, it was going Always. on way before then. Even to the point of like big name actors and actresses having been spies, and the Soviets did the same thing too. There was a woman I always forget her name, but um, one of the top actresses of the Soviet Union was was uh, Stalin's right hand spy, um, uh, Marlene Dietrich. She was a spy for the Nazis. Coco Chanel was a spy for the Nazis. Um, Errol Flynn was a spy. Um, don't forget, one of the best is um, pretty sure Cary Grant did something, although I haven't confirmed that. But uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart was an informer for the FBI. He actually was. Well, I mean, you know he that? was. A, you know, he was a. Uh, he was in the. Uh, he was in the army. He was in the army air corps. You know, before. Right. You know. So if you watch, if you you can find archive footage uh, on YouTube from Laurel Canyon, some of the movies people have found and put up. They'll, so there's all these clips of, of Jimmy Stewart doing Laurel Canyon propaganda. It's pretty crazy. That's man. I guess the other. So the other side of this would be the influence of the occult on Hollywood, uh, the influence of, of uh, certain figures and a lot of directors and actors and people being influenced by the occult as well. Right. Um, so where does where does that kind of start? Or? Well, I, in my book, I went back to, if you look at the, the last chapter of the second book, I go to German Expressionism and... Um, Metropolis. Metropolis, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. from Fritz Lang, because... Pretty much all the scholarship that I've found on that mainline scholarship all said that it was the first conscious satanic usage in, in film was German Expressionism, which is weird because Metropolis isn't 
really a satanic film that kind of has a positive message in a way because yeah, it's, it's more almost, of a socialist. It is. A, it is a yeah. yeah, and the message seems to be that like the heart uh, of society. If you look at society like a big man, the way Plato does, like a, like it's a mac- macrocosm or yeah. microcosm. If you have the elite or the brains working against the workers, the body or the heart, then the society won't work right. So yeah. there has to be harmony, which. Yeah, that's from the hermetic realm, but I mean it's kind of true. It seems like you know you can't yeah. have the elite trampling on the workers. It doesn't work. Um, and then the idea is that well, what happens when this this AI gets built? And I think that's the most fascinating aspect. It's not just the Moloch and the all the esoteric stuff, but that they foresaw AI. That, that really kind of blows my mind. And I mean, as you can see, it's like you know, at the base <laughs> of the pentagram is the AI, which it has kind of an anti. You know, oh, that's she becomes I, basically the whore of Babylon. Basically. Something I never guessed yeah. before, and she's she's depicted uh, in that way, right? Right. The whore, the whore of Babylon. She is. That's what she's called. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's in a dream sequence. I believe that the main character You're is having. Correct. Yeah. Right. And then I also found some like some old like B movies like Cherry Two Thousand and and other things like that that, that, that were similar. To, so basically, there's like an android sex bot section of the book, but. Um, so I would say you could go back to that, the, the German Expressionists, for the beginning of the occult in film. But even into the 40s and 50s in noir films, I've even found weird symbolism and occult references in a lot of neo, uh, noir, original noir films. Uh, like Glass Key, I think. There's a section where I discuss some of the Bogart films with... Um, oh, what's her name? Laura Bacall. Laura Bacall, exactly. Yeah. So there's, and, you, and then you start to notice that they're actually referencing, I, when I, I think it's Glass Key, but I never noticed they were filming porn. <laughs> yeah. But they, but they couldn't say that in the movie, so if you, if you have to pay attention. Looking back, you can figure it out. But. And, and I guess this is when, uh, and a little bit before that is when the uh, the occultist uh, Kenneth Anger and filmmaker, and he, he, I guess he really, you know, like he, he was in, in celebration of that. He was, yeah. My book, I would say, is kind of like uh, springboarded off of Hollywood Babylon, but the difference—the yeah. difference being that that he talks about a lot of like twenties, thirties, W.C. Fields people yeah. that most people nowadays don't really know about or care about. Whereas what I do is go directly into the symbolism of the film itself. So I would be more interested in like <laughs> Lucifer Rising, yeah, and the stuff that he was you know, doing, doing than than his book. Although it does, like, I actually began the book, I think, with a quote from Hollywood Babylon. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, because he calls it the gates of the gods, basically. Is there is there any influence on uh, from Manly P. Hall being there and you know the whole Los Angeles milieu of the time? There would be. I mean, there, you've got a lot of actors uh, and actresses who were involved in the different secret societies. I touch on that quite a bit, and certainly many of the men would have been Freemasons. There's no doubt. A lot of the studio heads were, were Freemasons, yeah. like MGM heads, people like that. No doubt. But Disney, of course. Dis- yeah, exactly. Um, but. Which I think they're kind of opening up about Club Thirty Three right. now. Yeah. I've seen that they've they've done some events that are I think semi public even now. Did so. you know that it was the CIA that helped Walt get the land to set that up? No, I did yeah. not. It's crazy. Which I mean, you know, you know Bosley too. So he's got his theories on on Disneyland itself being some kind of oh, I think device, you know, energy generator. It, yeah, well, essentially, it's, uh, do you know it has its own bylaws and constitution? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Well, I know that in Disney World, for 
Epcot Center, and their original idea was almost to have like this, this kind of a utopian. It is. It's a commune. smart. It's a smart city. Yeah. It was called the City of the Future. I did a video on that where um, it was preparing people for creating the AI smart city. Yeah, I still have a childhood memory of of uh, whatever the robot world was. I just remember going up a giant escalator and all these robots and shit. It's like ingrained in there. I don't know, man. But yeah, there's definitely something to it. Um, there's some of the you know some of the biggest I guess examples. Maybe we could give some 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 general descriptions of some of the symbolism. Like let's say just uh, 2001, one that everybody knows. I mean, what's your kind of take on 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 that? Um, I know you know it has a lot of obvious connotations. Maybe some stuff that other people don't don't see as much in it, or kind of your take on say something like two thousand one or, or Kubrick in general. I guess that's that's like a whole you know he has so many of his movies relate to all this stuff. It's like a five hour. Yeah, it is. Yeah, in fact, so. that's why uh, in the TV show that's why we did um, multiple episodes on Kubrick. So we have an episode on two thousand one. We have an Eyes Wide Shut episode. We have a Shining episode. Um, and I think, that, yeah, that's all the, the, the chapters in my book, the first 80 are, are those Kubrick films. Um, I think 2001, and this is the one film where Jay Widener and I had kind of a disagreement and debate. He sees it as a positive appraisal of man's movement. I take more of a critical approach where I see it as uh, the promulgation of transhumanism. I mean, Star Child is supposed to be actually the result of... Um, it's almost like Hal is leading, my view, is Hal is almost leading Bowman to do what he does. So even though we think, when we watch that movie, we think, oh, he's, it's man versus machine, who's going to triumph? It actually, if you re, if you look at the series where it goes, by 3001, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's very clear that Hal and Bowman become one entity called Hellman. It's transhumanism. So Star Child, right. Star Child is, I think, it's it's a Luciferian apotheosis. That's what I see it as. That's the monolith represents the beyond. It represents um, achieving apotheosis by mastering the technology, whatever this unknown, mysterious technology is that the monkeys are xenophobic about. It's about mastering that. It seems to perhaps be some kind of AI. I almost think Kubrick is telling us that that we're in this matrix because if you think about it, when Bowman leaves when he goes to the Stargate he sees like colors and and the fabric of reality kind of breaks down into these geometric patterns then he steps outside of reality Plato's cave that's yeah. how I read it almost like getting out of the matrix I mean I, I kind of literally see 2001 as, as I read it like the matrix so so when he gets out of it then he can be reborn as Star Child, and then he start, he can create his own worlds. So but it's almost a Gnostic element. It is totally Gnostic. Yeah. That's totally what I see it as. In 2010, at the end, and I've only seen the well, I've only seen the movie. I haven't read the book, but in 2010, at the end, you know, Hal asks Dave, you know, where we, where am I going? Yeah. And he says, oh, where I am now. So this idea that you know, Hal, he's not a biological entity, but he's an artificial intelligence. So exactly. The two intelligences are going to be merged they become helmet as if as if hal has a spirit of his own right yeah Yeah. so it's almost like a a god entity the ai is viewed like a god entity it's the emergent deity the deus ex machina and then when how when how when when bowman unites with it it's spoken of in in 3001 it's it's almost like a chariot like he rides around in this chariot the way the bible describes ezekiel's Mm -hmm. chariot like it's this I guess this Ships goes back you, to Arthur C. Clarke's the whole you know technology. It is exactly looking like magic, and, and they have Arthur yeah. C. Clarke quotes at the Marriott on the ground. 
that yeah. blew me away. Oh, yeah. Down there with the HG Wells, I've got RTC Clark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we can go to like transhumanism. Uh, is there anywhere you'd like to go in that? Or it seems like there's a real technological determinism and transhumanism that's being pushed right. uh, from Hollywood. What what movies in particular do you see, and what kind of uh, what's really the goal of of pushing these narratives of this being a unavoidable right. technological? Well, I started with um, an area that you might not expect in the book, where I talk about NGOs. Non-government organizations, um, how they're really the soft power in the world today. Yeah. Um, they function in the way that covert operations used to function, um, but they do it in a more open way behind the, the cloak of we're going to spread democracy and freedom. Um, but they're actually just tools for bigger interests, bigger power blocks. Um, so the reason that relates to transhumanism is because what NGOs, what propaganda, what movies, what all this stuff does, this, this cultural sludge, you could say, is intended to change perceptions. Not just change perceptions about the world or other nations, but as that one Stanford research document says, changing images of man. Oh, yeah. That's a Man's good changing images of himself. So mm -hmm. a big part of that is Darwin. A big part of that is evolution. A big part of that is the so-called uh, rights movements. So NGOs are big about promoting so-called rights. Uh, and this is ultimately just a Masonic philosophy, natural rights, declaration of the rights of man out of the French Revolution. These rights, although I'm not opposed to rights, they're weaponized rights. They're not about what they claim to be about. They're just about changing the, the local cultures under those glowing terms to make them more amenable to the overall plan of globalism. Kind of more the fragmentation stuff. It is. Well, like, we're going to go into some third world country and we're going to educate the women to for women's issues. When ultimately this is just about spreading abortion and depopulation. Women's education and women's rights in third world countries is not really about aiding women. Um, it's about promoting that stuff. So... That the way it relates to transhumanism is that these are kind of stepping stones on the long-term goal of engineering people to accept, like we were talking about earlier about the phones, the phone being the extension of you. Uh, so eventually future. you become cyborgs. Yeah. So that's and and there's just so many films that have that theme, even in a critical way, like a you know dystopian critique mm -hmm. way. Um, you could look at Tron, uh, you know, I covered the Matrix, so obvious ones, but I think that it was important to have those in the book. Uh, Running Man, um, Terminator, Her, Ex Machina, Westworld, Cherry 2000, because I, I like to throw in B-movies every now and then to just yeah, kind of yeah. make it fun, and then Metropolis, yeah. which is the oldest transhumanist movie I could think of. I really liked your analysis of the Alien series, too. Thank you. Because um, those were that's something like you got childhood. like terraforming and all kinds of weird like and yeah. then the the whole world is in abortion like yeah and the demonic yes. aspects Eager. of it also exactly um, yeah absolutely fascinating stuff man um, Adam you want to add anything man? I guess um, the main thing I was gonna go back to the we'll go back to the downer stuff a little bit and some of the, some of those connections. Well, uh, I drove past the pyramid in Memphis, and it's got yeah. a crystal skull at the top, which I first heard about from James Shelby Downard. So that's pretty crazy. Oh yeah, and uh, well, I mean, he, I think his writings really uh, uh, introduced a lot of people to just thinking about 
thinking about symbolism. I mean, it seems like he, yeah, he's really right. the genesis of all, all this kind of stuff, this like synchro mysticism. Exactly. And, right. and uh, it's in it's gone through so many permutations of culture now that a lot of people don't really understand how much of the genesis, I think, was with, with James Shelby Downard. But, uh, I mean, that's where it really all started for me in, in looking at the world in this way and recognizing right. symbolism and this whole idea of... Uh, the powers that be using events, using media to transform, to transform the population the mind, right. and, and and the mind on the on the micro and macro level. Exactly. So I think I think that's really a really what all all this it is, and that's why it relates is. directly to, to propaganda. Because yeah. if you if you're if you're looking at it from a military or control perspective, you can see the obvious usage of that. Is there is there a connection also? Because um, we you did. We did. We started talking about um, Ian Fleming, and of course, you know, he did know Crowley. Um, what kind of is, is there a lot of? Well, he was in the, the circles. From, um, yeah, from he Crowley was in a lot of this. Yeah, you'll find in um, the first book. There's a dissected analysis of the Devil Rides Out, which is a Dennis Wheatley film, and Wheatley was in the circles. He hung out with Crowley. Uh, Fleming himself didn't actually ever meet him, but they were in the same circles. But Wheatley actually designed a lot of the characters in the stories around Crowley. The Mokata character in Devil Rides Out yes. is totally Crowley. Yep. Uh, so you'll like that essay there, and I go deep into like the British intelligence uh, connections to the occult uh, in that section, that chapter. But but no, there's definitely a Crowley connection. In fact, uh, even though Fleming didn't know Crowley, Blofeld and Le Chief, the two Bond villains, are, are partly based on Crowley. Uh, that's interesting. I never that's thought why, about that. That's yeah. why Blofeld's bold. Yeah. Um, and I've wondered about it because you know, I watched some of the earlier um, James Bond yeah. films. And I, to me, it almost seems like Spectre is kind of like that underground it is. Nazi it's the, international. It's the elite, yeah. 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 yeah uh, in Fleming's personal library, he had a bunch of books on eugenics and depopulation. So he was aware of this. And that's why he's putting people, especially the Drax character in Moonraker. Uh, Hugo Drax is part of the the Nazi elite that wanted to mass depopulate. Now the movie is is goofy, but the Hugo Drax character in the movie still has that idea. So when you read part one, you'll see in the Moonraker chapter where I touch on that. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Is there anything that you wanted to add, real quick? Uh, no, I mean we're just gonna we're gonna wrap it up here because uh, okay. we're kind of out of time. But uh, we've had a great time today. Nice to meet you, man, and uh, yeah, show you a little synchro mystical tour of the city. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, man, uh, look forward to uh, to uh, getting another interview in the future, maybe, and, and whatever that, yeah. you're keeping up with, whatever you're working on. Yeah, we'll go into more detail in a more kind of full scale interview. We'll put this out as like a little bonus episode. Right. For- it's paranormal. That's right. Excellent. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Jay, for doing this, man. Thank you, man. Meeting up with us. And, uh, guys, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back in the regular show. It's paranormal.
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.